going to start in 2 Corinthians 10 this morning. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It is a very common Bible analogy to, for this life, and especially living the Christian life. The Bible calls it a battle, a war. In the entire Old Testament, and often in the New Testament, this soldier battle war language is used. And this is one of the most famous passages where Paul says, we're in a war. But it isn't the war that the rest of the world's in, and we're not using physical weapons, that we're fighting to demolish strongholds. And the word stronghold means fort or castle. And then, but then he says where those strongholds are, that they're in our minds. It's arguments, it's logic, it's thinking that is contrary to God. And Paul says that the battle is to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And in Ephesians 6, 12, he reminds us again that we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. It is very hard to remember in the specific day-to-day -day situations, but the people are never our enemies. We can get pretty sidetracked with that and forget, no, uh, my, this person is not my enemy. I'm not actually fighting against him or her. I'm, I'm fighting the spirits that have agitated this situation and that are provoking it. And so here we've got this language that Paul uses that we're in a battle and that we have weapons. Paul says, you and I have weapons, plural, to fight this battle with. I've been listening a lot in the last three or four weeks to a Dutch missionary named Otto Koning. He was in Papua New Guinea in the Indonesian islands years ago and and uh, I need to give credit to him for inspiring this sermon. This is not his sermon, but it's, I'm listening to him a lot, and he's teaching me good things. And he, and he says that in this, in this statement that we have weapons that are not of this world, he said pretty much people who know the Bible automatically think of Ephesians 6, the armor that God gives us to wear, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith. He's like, that's not your weapons. Those aren't weapons, that's armor. That we wear armor to protect ourselves, but the weapons that we fight against the enemy with are something else. I have a list of weapons that you've been equipped with this morning that I want to remind you of. And as I had this sermon finished last night, I went to bed and I'm praying in the dark and talking to the Lord. And, and the Lord told me something I, in my mind's eye. I saw a very small rowboat, maybe six, eight feet long out in the middle of the ocean, and the waves are enormous. Huge waves, 50, 100 feet high. And there, the storm is blowing crazy, and, and the waves are up and down and up and down. And, and this man in this little boat has no oars. He has no motor. He's just totally at the mercy of the waves, riding up and down helplessly. And the Lord said to tell you all this morning, that's not you. That you are not a victim of circumstance. 
you are not at the mercy of life's storms, that you have the Spirit of God in you, and that way too many people who have been walking with the Lord for years are still crying out to Jesus to save them like they're helpless. But you have been given weapons. You've been filled with the spirit of the living God and you can do something about your circumstances and your situation. Before you were saved, before you called on the name of the Lord and got forgiven and rescued, that was you in the little boat. Totally at the mercy of life's circumstances and situations and other people just getting thrown around and that's what everybody in the world, that's how they live. They're just surviving. They're just coping. They're just living through from tragedy to tragedy, from depression to financial failure to anger to divorce to broken families and they're just living through it, physically surviving. Unfortunately, that is also way too many people who call themselves Christians just riding in the boat, hoping Jesus saves them from the storm. But this verse says you have been given weapons to fight a battle. I know last night as I'm praying and I'm seeing this picture, I know this is what I'm preaching on and I'm talking to the Lord about it and I'm watching to see what he wants to show me or listen to what he wants to tell me. So I see this little man in this tiny little rowboat on the vast ocean and he's just riding the waves, totally helpless, totally powerless. And the Lord says for me to tell you, that's not you. Stop seeing your life that way. The next picture he showed me is a soldier in desert-colored fatigues like our soldiers now wear, helmet and fatigues, and he's in a sandbag bunker. Some of you may have lived that, but the rest of us, you've seen enough movies, you know what a sandbag bunker is. The pile sandbags in a circle, and he's in a city street, and he's inside this circle of sandbags, and he's got a machine gun that's so big, it's one of the really big ones that's on a tripod. I mean, a really big. And, he, and then inside his bunker, he has a pile of grenades. And there's people shooting up and down the street and across the windows. It's a, it's a Middle Eastern city urban warfare hell is what I saw. And this guy is in the bunker, and he's laying on the ground crying. Underneath the machine gun, he's laying on the, on the ground, crying, screaming, Jesus, save me. See the problem? And the Lord told me, this is way too many of my people. I have given them very powerful weapons, and I want them in the battle, but instead they're scared and won't stick their head up and fight. So I'm not here to rebuke anybody or chew you out or make you feel guilty. I'm here to encourage you, don't be the guy in the rowboat, don't be the guy who's outfitted with very powerful weapons, but is still shouting at Jesus to change your circumstances so that you aren't scared. So I'm going to go through this list of weapons. Paul says we have weapons that are not of this world because we're in a battle that's not of this world. And it, you're not meant to be a victim of circumstances. You're not meant to be just surviving or coping through life. You are meant to be an overcomer. The New Testament is full of the word overcome and victory and, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and I, you are more than a champion. You are more than a conqueror. You are not meant to just 
survive the circumstances of the world like everybody else. You're meant to be victorious and to overcome. And in order to do that, you have to fight with the right weapons. The world fights with their weapons, and I don't even mean the physical soldiers with guns and tanks, but I just mean people fight the circumstances and battles of their life by just having to grit their teeth and get through it, or they fight by arguing, they fight with divorce, they fight with running away, they fight with quitting, they fight with lawsuits, they fight with medicines that have more side effects than solutions. So as I go through this, when I use the word battle or war or fight or whatever, I'm talking about your battles. Because Paul says the, weapon, the war we're fighting is not in this world. But it is. Because it's in your head. And it's in your family. And it's in your liver. And it's in your intestine. And it's in your bones. And it's in your finances. And it's in your lawsuit. And it's in your kids. And it's in your grandkids that are addicted to drugs. And it's, and it's in our government. And it's in, it's in the world. But the people are not the enemy. So we don't fight like the world fights. Can I get an amen? Right, so all this, we're, just go, we're still going down the runway, but we're about to take off. But just setting the context here, Paul says we got a war to fight. It's not a physical, earthly war. It's a spiritual battle. People are not our enemies, but it's always going to involve people and circumstances and money and health and family breakups and it's all in this world and circumstances and people, and, and it, it's a big mess. When, but then Paul says you can't, you can't fight like the rest of the world does, and our weapons aren't what the rest of the world fights with. And So as I go through this, you know your battle. You know your medical diagnosis or your family situation or your financial situation or your legal situation or your coworker situation or you got an employee that's trashing your business and, or a coworker that makes it not fun for anybody to come to work and or you got grandkids that are addicted to drugs and not walking with the Lord. And you know, this is many different situations here. And you, you, have to, you have to take this and go to the Lord yourself as, as we go. So Paul says we have weapons of our warfare for breaking down the strongholds that are contrary to God. And number one weapon is prayer. I think that's probably where most Christians would think first is, yes, we pray and we fight with prayer. And that's true. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Um, prayer is, can be very specific. I'm, Lord, I'm praying about this grandchild. Lord, I'm praying about this financial need. Lord, I'm praying about this medical need. I see prayer as the infantryman's personal rifle. That when everybody goes in the military, everybody gets a rifle. And you, you shoot that rifle at a target, and that's prayer. Prayer is targeted. I'm praying about this thing. I'm praying about this person. I'm praying about this need. I'm shooting my weapon at that problem. Not the person, the problem, okay? The situation, the circumstance, the spirit. And um, the reason I think it's, I think prayer is like your personal M4 rifle. Is it an M4? Is that what we use now? Okay. The reason I think it is is because you, in, in military training, everybody has, to, everybody gets one. Later, you get a specialty. You might be in the artillery. You might be in a tank crew. You might be uh, throwing mortars. You might be doing recon or whatever. But everybody, everybody, everybody gets the basic training with the rifle. And, and it is Christian, kindergarten Christianity. Pray, 
pray without ceasing. Flip that switch to full auto and throw it everywhere. Serious. It, it is your full auto rifle. Pray about absolutely everything. And the person who's got a, who's in basic training, who's got um, no experience and is really, really bad with aiming, can still hit things with a full auto rifle. You throw enough lead through the air, you're going to hit the target eventually, you know. And that's the way a lot of people pray. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just throwing up prayers, hoping something hits. You know what? A lot of times that works. It really does. God is that gracious. He is that good that even when we don't have a clue what we're doing, he answers our prayers. But if you will get some marksmanship training and learn how to control the rifle and aim and view the sight, and you can become a sniper. You can know exactly what I need to do, how I need to pray, how I need to aim this thing. And you can, you can learn to pray with precision. I'm not saying that everybody has to, and I'm not saying that you're wrong if you don't. I'm, I'm saying God says pray nonstop. That is just blast it. It's okay. It's good. But you can also learn how to pray in the same way that a soldier in basic training can pick up some basic marksmanship, and then you can learn even more. Jesus, in Luke 18, told a story to his disciples to show that they should always pray and never give up. Always pray. That is the weapon that we always have on hand. No soldier goes out into the battlefield. He may have other duties, and she may have other skills and knowledge and expertise and, and a different mission, but they always got their rifle. Always pray. Never stop. Just let it fly. It's the, it's the most basic, most effective weapon that God has given us, is praying. If, if, capital I, capital F, if you are praying with faith. Because complaining, begging, venting, whining is not prayer. It's not wrong to whine to God. I do it. <laughs> David does it in the Psalms. It's not wrong to, to vent your complaints to the Lord. David says, God, listen while I give you my complaints. Habakkuk says, God, listen while I give you my complaints. But let's not spiritualize our complaining and call it prayer. It's complaining. You've heard me say before, it isn't prayer unless you are changed by it. If you just go to God and list all the th problems in life and God change this person and change that person and change this and give me that, and that's not prayer. It's not wrong to give God all your emotion. Just let him have it all. Cry, scream, maybe cuss. I don't know. Sometimes it helps. But that's not prayer. Because James 1 says you must pray in faith or you will not receive what you're asking for. You must believe for sure that God hears you and that he will answer. In Mark 11, 23 and 24, Jesus said, believe, when you pray, believe you receive and you will receive. Notice the believing, the faith comes first and then the receiving. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So faith is what puts the, puts the gunpowder in your, in your bullet. It makes it actually go somewhere and work. Otherwise, it's just venting. So number one weapon God has given us, 
the most basic and for sure the most common and the thing you should be doing all day and all night is praying, talking to God. Another weapon he's given us is speaking his word, to declare the word of God. Memorize Bible verses and speak it as a weapon, like Jesus did to Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him and he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus has been praying for 40 days and nights. But in this particular situation, in this day's battle, he does not pray. He's throwing Bible grenades. Like, I'm speaking scripture back at Satan. And he says, when Satan tempts him, he says, he quotes a Bible verse. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you got to know your Bible and you got to know what applies in your situation, which means you have to just read it every day so that it's in you, so that you can quote it when the devil comes at you. But there are times when you are in the darkest recesses of your emotions in the middle of the night and you are feeling really, really, really bad and you can pray genuine, real, desperate prayers and it doesn't help because you're praying out of anxiety and fear, you need to start speaking the word of God that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am more than an overcomer. God loves me and Jesus will never leave me. And I don't need to beg him in fear or desperation to change how I'm feeling. I need to decide the word of God is true and believe it so that my feelings change. You see the difference? One's prayer is a weapon, but so is the word of God. And they have different purposes. And they have different targets. I am um, calling this speaking the word of God grenades because it's more powerful than my prayer. Because my prayer could be wrong. I know that. You know, I, I pray probably most of my prayers are not exactly what God wants. And he's just gracious and he answers anyway. But he answers his will. But the word of God is always rock solidly true. And... Uh, we can, we can bank on it. So Jesus throws a grenade at Satan to shut him up. The devil dodges that one and sticks around. And he says, the devil took him up to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, now Satan uses the word of God to try to conceive, uh, deceive Jesus, to trick him, because that worked on Eve. When he came to Eve, he's like, did God really say this? And Francis Frangipane says, every single spiritual battle in your life is over the word of God. Are you going to believe it or not? Both God and the devil are interested to see, is, is Rob Smith going to believe this promise or not? So the devil starts quoting some scripture. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus wasn't confused or deceived by the devil twisting scripture out of context. And he, again, he just throws scripture right back at the devil. Again, I'm pointing out, Jesus had been praying for 40 days. Don't stop praying. Just add to it your Bible grenades. Just start throwing scripture at your situation. Yes? Again, the devil took him up exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You got to know scripture, you got to know what it says, and you got to believe it, and you got to speak it. I'm doing that right now. 
Every time I preach, I'm using the Bible to break down strongholds, to take your thoughts captive to the obedience to Christ. I'm here to tell you what this book says. I'm here to tell you who Jesus is to break off wrong thinking, to break down the fortresses that people build that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Another way we speak the word of God is that in 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul tells Timothy, remember the prophecies that has been spoken over you and wage war with them. Paul tells Timothy, remember who God has said you are and war with that thing. Hang on to that word from the Lord. This is who God told me I am. I have this prophecy and no matter what doubt or fear or anxiety or panic or need or medical diagnosis or lawsuit or whatever comes into my life, I know who God has said I am and I'm hanging on to that and in it because it's true. That's not prayer. Prayer is not wrong. Pray continually. But this is just an additional weapon in your arsenal. The very first prophecy from this church in 1975 is that this church is a citadel, which means fortress. This church is a fort and that it has an arsenal in it where people can come to get weapons. That's what I'm doing this morning. I'm giving you your weapons that you can go and fight your battles in spirit, not against people. But you go fight your battles. I'm arming you this morning. You got prayer and you got speaking the word of God. Know the promises of God and claim them. If you've got grandchildren and children that aren't saved, then find the scriptures. There are some really good ones. In Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah, I will save your children. Great shall be the peace of your children. All your children shall be taught of God. I'm quoting scripture to you just so you know. Learn those. Find them and speak them over your grandkids or your kids or whatever, your, your parents if they're not born again. Find out the financial verses in scripture. And speak them over your finances. If you're getting sued, then speak all the verses about God defending you from that. And speak the promises of God. Speak victory. Instead of laying there in the bumper crying for Jesus to save you, get up and fire your weapon. Another weapon that he has given us is resisting. According to James 4.7, So humble yourselves before God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. I have always shied away from this one because there are people who are professional devil binders and they're just like, I bind this spirit in Jesus' name and I bind that spirit in Jesus' name and I cast out this spirit in Jesus' name and I wonder if they really know what they're doing. And it's just silly sometimes. But the Lord has recently in the last couple of years taught me that just because some people are silly with it doesn't mean it isn't true. Because Jesus did say, everything you bind on earth will be bound in the spirit and everything you loose on earth will be loosed in the spirit. And so... It's true. And Paul very plainly says, we're not fighting against people and circumstances. That we're fighting against spirits. So there is a place for binding and loosing. And Jesus said in one of his parables, if you, if you want to set the house free, you have to go in and bind the strong man. He says, there's, there's a strong spirit living in your house, which is your soul. There's a spirit in there that's dominating everything about you and everyone around you through you. He said, if I'm going to deliver you, I have to come in and bind the strong man and then I can plunder his house, which is your heart. I can set you free. So there is a place for binding and loosing and resisting the devil. And so here it is. So this auto coning that I, I just mentioned, which is this missionary in Indonesia that I've been listening to recently, says that he would go into the jungle and have 
meetings in these villages of literal headhunting cannibals, and he would try to plant churches. And in seven years, he had two converts. And he said, finally, the Lord taught me through a book about resisting the devil. He said, so I, I said, one day, he said, this is not how my church does this. This was really strange and queer language to me. He said, but just, I just went off by my side, and off to the side before the meeting, and I said, all right, devil, according to James 4, 7, I resist you, and I tell you, you cannot interrupt this meeting, because he said, whenever I'd have, try to have church, there would be people talking, there would be babies crying, there would be men sharpening their spears, and, and there would, he said, the women in the congregation would just talk over my preaching. He said, one time a pig ran through the wall, because it was just palm fronds. And I've experienced some of that in Manitoba when we were on the reservation. We, just, we had dogs run through the tent in the middle of my preaching. We had a cop show up with lights on and a drunk guy. It was crazy stuff happens. And Otto's like, I, I just realized this is the devil interrupting the meetings and stopping the gospel. So he said, off, I went off to the side and I said, devil, I resist you in Jesus' name. According to James 4, 7, you must flee. You're not going to interrupt this meeting. Jesus is going to have his way. He had 40 converts in one night said, there was not a single interruption in my meeting. And he said, so from then on, I did it every time. And he said, it works. There is a place, there is a weapon, there is some power available to us in resisting the devil. It's a command of the Lord. It isn't spooky, superstitious weirdness. It is, it's a command of the Lord. So if, if nothing else, if you're not comfortable with any other language, just, just quote James 4.7. <laughs> the devil, you got to run. You're not, you're not going to have any place in my family anymore. You're not going to keep whispering the word divorce to us. You're not going to keep dragging my kids away with violence and movies and alcohol. And I resist you in Jesus' name. You're not a victim of the circumstances and you don't have to stand by and passively watch your kids get pulled out into hell. You're not their savior, only Jesus is. But you don't have to passively stand by and say, there's nothing I can do. He's given you some weapons. Stand up and fight. Another weapon he's given us is rejoicing, praise, thanksgiving. Joy of the Lord is our strength for the battle. But it isn't God's command for us to rejoice is not just so that we feel better. God didn't say rejoice, and again I say rejoice so that you'll have a better day. He's giving you the key to win the war because thankfulness, praise, joy is a weapon that we fight with. When Jesus had 5,000 people to feed and he only had five loaves of bread and two or three little fish, what's he do? He holds it up and he thanks God for it and it becomes enough to feed 5,000 people. Bill Johnson says, when you thank God when it's not enough, it becomes enough. Thank God first when it's not enough, rejoice when you don't feel like rejoicing, sing when you don't feel like singing, sing when it's scary. Second Chronicles 20 is the story where Jehoshaphat is told by the prophet to put the singers and musicians in front of the battle, in front of the army. Well, no military in the ancient world, no military now would do that. Oh, we're going to have a concert in the middle of the street instead of shooting our guns at you. Jehoshaphat puts the worship band in front of the army which makes absolutely no sense, but when, it, when they obeyed God and the worship went first, 
they didn't even have to fight the battle. They came over the top of the hill, and when they arrived, the enemy had committed suicide. They had all killed themselves fighting over the, the valuables. And, all, and Israel said it, there were so many valuables in the camp that it took three days to pack it all back to Jerusalem. All they did was get rich off of the plunder of the enemy because they praised the Lord going into the battle. There didn't end up being a battle. And Joshua 6, Joshua's marching around the walls of Jericho. What brought the walls of Jericho down? It wasn't a battering ram or a catapult. What was it? A shout, shout of praise brought it down. God just brought the walls down. Us rejoicing, us singing, praising the Lord, giving thanks in the battle is not just so that God can tell you how to have a better attitude or how to feel better in your day while you suffer, while you just cope through the situation. He's outfitting you to win the situation. So again, you're laying there in the middle of the night in the darkest corners, uh, recesses of your terrible emotions or fears or whatever. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to quote scripture at the devil or your own mind and actually believe it until you feel it. Or maybe you need to get up and dance. Seriously, put on a really happy praise song and celebrate Jesus when you feel 0% like celebrating. I guarantee you that works. I don't do it real often, but in the last two years, I've probably done it 10 times. At 2 a.m., I'm laying awake and my mind is racing and it's going bad places. And I'm feeling bad things. And I put on shorts and a sweatshirt and I go out on our patio and I spook our horse, singing and dancing and hoping the neighbors are not out in the middle of their lawn in the middle of the night. And I sing and I dance and I jump around and celebrate the Lord and it looks absolutely idiotic and I feel like a total fool. But I tell you what, it calms me down. It gets my mind off of that circle, circle, circle of my problems and the terrible thing that I'm afraid of, and it gets me onto Jesus in a way that laying there in bed trying to do that doesn't work. I have to get up and actually hallel. It's the Hebrew word hallelujah. Hallel means to dance and spin in celebration of God. There's medical proof that exercise puts you in a better mood. Well, David knew that a long time ago. Yeah, when I dance and spin and jump, I'm really, really happy. Rejoicing is a weapon for the battle. Another weapon the Lord has given us is love. We know we have to love everybody. We know that if you're a serious disciple of Jesus, forgiveness is not an option. I mean, there is an option. The other option is hell. I mean, forgiveness is not an option. It's a command. It's not a discussion, but Jesus gave us something even more powerful than forgiveness in Matthew 5. He said, I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus didn't just say, well, if somebody treats you bad, you have to forgive them, but you can stay away from them. 
He said, no, you go to them and do good to them. And you pray for them and you bless them. And that may start out as, okay, Jesus, bless her. Amen. But you do that long enough and sincerely enough, honestly wanting to get your heart right with the Lord, um, in a few days or weeks, you can probably get to the place where you can honestly bless the people who've hurt you the worst. Pray for them in real blessing. Again, that is not God telling us to do that just so that our own attitude is fixed. It is a weapon to win the battle. Love is irresistible. It cannot fail. Love cannot fail. If you need reconciliation in your family, love cannot fail. Got to move on. You either get that or you don't. Another weapon he's given us is humility. Francis Frangipane writes this, Satan is terrified of humility. He hates it. He sees a humble person and it sends chills down his back. His hair stands up and when Christians kneel down for humility is the surrender of the soul to God. The devil trembles because the meek before the meek because in the very areas where he once had access, now there stands the Lord and the devil is terrified of Jesus Christ. The weapons are getting, and my list here, are getting progressively bigger. I see these, this is like a, this is a big bomb. If, if you will humble yourself in whatever circumstance you are in, if you will be the peacemaker, if you will be the first to apologize, if you will be the one to ask forgiveness, even if you think it is 90% his fault and only 10% mine, if you will go and ask first, you be the humble one. It is earth-shaking bomb. Because Satan cannot resist humility. He has no answer to it. If you will be the first to apologize, you will shock the person who's angry at you and thinks you're angry at them. And If you don't defend yourself when you're getting accused or even lied about, one of the weapons of our humility is silence. I'm not exactly sure why silence works, but Isaiah said when Jesus was going to the cross, he didn't open his mouth. And he didn't. The Gospels tell us that he really didn't speak at all in front of Herod. And he answered a couple of Pilate's questions. But while the crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and Pilate is asking him, hey, dude, just give me something to let you off the hook. Just say something. And Jesus wouldn't say anything. And it said Pilate marveled at his silence. Jesus used silence in his battle that day. Joshua used it in the walls of Jericho. We said earlier that a shout is what brought the walls down, but they walked around the walls 12 times in total silence. Before the shout, somehow God had them, for some reason God had them use a, a combination of silence and shouting to bring those walls down. And for those of you women who are married, God says if your husband is a butthead, it says that in the right translation. If your husband is a butthead, win him without a word. Win him. That's, that's a battle word. 
Do not say a word and you will win. That's God's instruction. That takes some faith. Because the next sentence says, husbands likewise. Now we're talking about some big, powerful weapons to destroy darkness. If you will have the faith to shut your mouth. We all know opening our mouth never makes it better. Except this time, it's going to work. I mean, she just really needs to hear this. Right now, this is exactly what needs to happen. This is what needs to be said. And that never works. But God's like, I'm not just telling you to be quiet, just telling you to shut up and submit and sit down. I'm telling you how to win. He uses the word win. Silence. Humility. Brought down the walls of Jericho. Jesus, I'm still talking about humility as a weapon. Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. I guess most of us think what he meant by that is don't retaliate. Don't punch them back. Well, the Bible does say that. It says don't return evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. There are several New Testament scriptures that talk talk to us about not retaliating. But that's not what Jesus said when he said turn the other cheek. It includes don't throw the second punch. It includes that, but what does turn the other cheek actually mean? It means you just hurt me. I'm going to risk you hurting me again, and I'm not moving away. I'm not distancing myself from this situation. That's how serious turn the other cheek is. Maybe I don't retaliate, but I want to run with everything that's in me. The turn the other cheek is stay put, knowing that person's going to hit me again with whatever circumstance. That's what Jesus said. I'm not going to back off from loving you, even though I know you'll probably hurt me again. I'm sticking with you. Turning the other cheek is such a powerful weapon. Donna Matson gave Sarah a book written during the Cold War period when the Soviet Union was in place. And this book is written by a young man who's 21, became a Christian, escaped to Canada to get free, and then wrote a book about his life as secret police officer who led a group of 15, 19 to 21-year-olds who had been totally propagandized and brainwashed by the communists, and their job was to go bust up secret church meetings. Every few days, sometimes multiple days in a row, but every few days they would get information on where the Christians were meeting secretly, and they would say, go to this address, and you have total freedom to do whatever. Beat them up, kill them, put them in the hospital, arrest them, whatever you need to do. And so this gang of 10 or 12 or 15, 19 to 21 year olds would come in with their rubber wrapped steel batons and they'd just start crushing heads. They'd break teeth, bust skulls, kill people. It was, it was horrendous. Now he's become a Christian, escaped to Canada, telling this story. 
that back when he was 20, he said, we, we went into a church meeting and he said, we just, we just went to work. He said, some of my guys were professional boxers. He said, I was professional judo. And he said, we, we could bust up a room really quick. He said, the Christians never fought us back. They would pray and they would cry and they would beg us to stop, but they never threw a punch. They never defended themselves as we just beat them to a bloody pulp. This one particular meeting, he said, there was a girl there. She's like in her earliest 20s. He said, I picked her up and I threw her across the room and she hit the wall and just fell in a slump. She's completely knocked out. She'd already been slapped around and beat up. He said, we, we left that room. Everybody is on the floor bleeding, groaning and moaning or completely knocked out. He said, she was out cold. The next meeting they went to bust up, either the next night or a couple days later, I don't remember the details, but she was there. She'd come back, knowing it could happen again. He said, we went, we're in a different building in a different part of town, and there she is. She's there again, so we're going to teach her a lesson. And he said that they stripped her naked, and they beat her so hard that the skin on her back popped open. And they left her there in a, just a bloody mush, as well as everybody else. A couple days later, they get a call to another meeting in another building in another secret part of town. And there she is. And he said, and, and this guy named Yuri, who he said he was my meanest, most heartless thug. He said, he raises his baton and he looks at her and he says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to teach you a lesson. And one of his other guys steps in front of him and says, you're not going to touch her or I will kill you. She has something we don't. And you're going to leave her alone. What was that? Satan got defeated because she kept turning the other cheek. She kept coming back, even though it cost her dearly. She kept returning to the prayer meeting. That isn't Jesus saying, don't retaliate. That's Jesus telling you how to win. And it was her presence in those three meetings, especially after the second one where he had literally beat her to a pulp. It was her. He said, after that, I couldn't get it out of my mind. What made her go to those meetings? What did she have that I did not have? And over the next year, he planned his escape to Canada, and he gets himself positioned in the Navy where he's on a ship, and they get close to the Canadian coast, and he jumps in the Bering Sea, and he swims like four hours to get to the, in a, in a blizzard, to get to the coast of Canada, almost dies, to find out what do these people have because she turned the other cheek. That's when in the battle. That's the power of humility. Another weapon the Lord's given us is surrender. And by surrender, I don't mean giving up or quitting or being pacifist about it. I just mean surrendering control. Worship is surrender. Worship literally means to fall on your face before God 
And there's something really powerful about somebody who will fall on their face before God and tell him, God, I love you and I trust you while they're bleeding. While you're hurting as bad as you've ever hurt in your life. And you get on your knees or on your face and you tell God, I trust you. I love you. You're awesome. Jesus worshiped from the cross. The Gospels don't tell us that, but Psalm 22 does. Psalm 22 is a prophetic picture that David prophesied the cross a thousand years ahead of time. It's the psalm that Jesus quoted because the Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus speaking in Psalm 22 says, God, where are you at? Why are you letting this happen? I'm all alone and I'm terrified and I'm in pain. And then you get to verse 3 and he says, Jesus says, You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And then he goes back to crying out to God, but for a moment... He stopped, and he said, I trust you, Father. I surrender. I worship you. To give up control, to completely give in, to obey whatever God says, no matter how much sense it doesn't make in your circumstance, is surrender. Bill Johnson says, if you've prayed for a long time about something, and you keep praying in panic or fear or anxiety, There is a correct way to stop praying about something. Just surrender it to the Lord. He knows what you need. He's heard your thoughts and feelings and desires because I've let him know all of them. I've been praying about this for a long time. If you realize that your prayers are actually a lack of faith, it's time to stop praying and have some faith. Just surrender it. Quit begging, quit asking. Because Otto Koenig says you're going to get a lot further with God surrendering and rejoicing than begging and pleading. You're going to get a lot more done with the Lord surrendering and then just celebrate. I'm talking about before the Lord solves your problem. When your family is a mess, when you have a terrible health problem, when you have a disastrous financial situation, surrender it. Just just give in. Say, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Whatever you want, I'll do it. Whatever you don't want, whatever, I surrender. And then just celebrate God. Just tell him how great he is. That's going to get you a lot further than begging and pleading. Because God isn't, again, God isn't telling you to do these things just to correct your attitude. He's telling you how to win. He's telling you how to fix the situation. Another weapon he's given us is the nature of Jesus. The character of Christ. Francis Frangipane writes this in The Three Battlefields. Many of our spiritual conflicts simply are not going to cease until the character of the Lord Jesus is formed in our hearts. God has only one answer to spiritual warfare, appropriate the nature of his son. The father is more concerned with the coming forth of his son in our lives than he is about defeating Satan. Victory begins with the name of Jesus on your lips, but it will not be consummated until the nature of Jesus is in your heart. You can pray till you're blue in the face for the Lord to fix your marriage, but if you are not willing to change and be like Jesus, he can't answer that prayer. But God, it really is her fault. You don't understand. Let me explain it to you, Lord. No, you change to become like Jesus. Even if you think you're only 2% at fault, you become like Jesus. That is the answer. That is the spiritual warfare, is that you become like Jesus. We can pray and pray and pray, and that's not wrong, but it isn't going to be finished until we become like Jesus. And then the nuclear bomb of God's arsenal the greatest weapon that cannot be defeated 
is the death of self. The death of self. Because Hebrews 12, 14 says, speaking of Jesus, by his death, he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. The greatest victory ever won was Jesus' death. Francis Frangipane says, the greatest battle that was ever won was accomplished by the apparent death of the victor without even a word of rebuke to his adversary. You can bind the devil all day long. You can claim the promises you want to believe all day long. But if you really, really want to fix the situation, if you really want to win, die to yourself. Give up what you want. Give up your life. I don't mean physically. I mean give up yourself. Because Revelation 12:11 says that. They overcame him by the, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. They overcame. That's a battle word. That's a, that's a, that's a fight. They're, in fact, in the previous verse, verse 10, they're fighting the devil. And how did they overcome? They didn't care if they died. I don't think God's probably got plans for any, many of us to be martyred for our Christian faith, but he has plans for you to die to self every day. Give up what you want. Stop fighting your spouse. Stop fighting your parents. Stop fighting your kids. Stop fighting your boss. Give in and be like Jesus. Jesus' death, the darkness had no answer to that. Satan had no answer. It was absolutely the nuclear bomb of heaven that was irresistible. You give up yourself to win someone else, it's untouchable. Again, back to Francis Frangipane, if you want to be like Christ, you have to be willing to lay down your life for other people's sin. But Mitch, Jesus already did that. He paid for people's sin. Well, yes, but you're married to a flawed person and you're going to pay a cost for that. And you have to do that in real love. You, all the parents in the room, you know, you pay a cost for your kid's sins. But we do that pretty much, pretty willingly. Some parents do, some don't. But for those of us who are serious disciples of Jesus, that's to be, we're to have that toward everyone. Love your enemies. Greater has no, love has no man than he lay down his life. It's the most powerful weapon God has given you. Is to surrender and give up yourself and become the servant of all. And it isn't so that you can be a doormat and be walked on for the rest of your life. It is so that you will win. This is God's answer to the situation, and you'll see the situation change, but it takes tremendous faith to lay down first, believing that God will actually change the situation through your obedience. But there it is. That's your arsenal. There are other weapons that God's given us, fasting, praying in tongues. William Booth mentioned that weeping was a really powerful way to pray. That when they'd go into a city and crusades weren't working, he said, pray, pray, until, pray until you're crying for the lost in this city, and then you'll have breakthrough. Any of the gifts of the Spirit are, are weapons in the Spirit. I think word of knowledge is night vision goggles. The Holy Spirit lets us see into the dark so we can see what's going on. Tithing is specifically listed as a weapon. How do I know which one to use? I'm, I'm going to draw this up 
real quick here. How do we know which one to use? Am I supposed to pray about this, or am I supposed to quote Scripture, or am I supposed to be humble and forgive, or what? Am I supposed to love my enemy? What are you supposed to do? Number one, ask the Holy Spirit what to do. What do I need to do in this situation with my family or my job or, or my health or whatever? Ask the Lord what to do and do what he says. But in the absence of understanding exactly what you should do, here's the number one question you need to ask. What do I least feel like doing? What do I not want to do right now? I am not feeling thankful. Drop everything and list everything you can be thankful for right now. I mean, literally, stop your day and start being thankful. If the last thing in the world you would want to do is sing a happy song, sing a happy song. I mean, praise song to the Lord. Like, I am, I'm in the depths of depression or anxiety right now. Sing. If your thought is, I have prayed about this for 10 years and God has never answered my prayer, I am ready to give up. Now is the time to pray. Because it's the thing you feel like least like doing. Pray again. If the constant thought in your head is, I'm not apologizing until he does. That jerk, he's the one that's wrong and he needs to get it. You go apologize. Find something to apologize for. Make connection. Start the reconciliation process. There's your weapon. You can pray to God for 20 years. God, get through to him. Get through his thick skull so that he will apologize to me and that will never work. If the weapon that's going to win that battle is your humility. Amen. Prayer team, you want to come on up. We're here to pray with you if you...